Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, it's a look back at some of our favorite conversations from 2022. We do 52 fresh programs per year, so it's not easy to choose the highlights. But every year at this time, we choose a number of highlights from the program to remind ourselves of how wide the reach of the Jefferson Hour is and how fortunate we are in our special guests, Dr. Lindsay Chervinsky, Joseph Ellis, David Nicandri, and many others. Some of the highlights include a discussion of the marriage of Abigail and John Adams, Jefferson's famous letter about the wall of separation between church and state, the vicious dispute between Jefferson and Hamilton over the constitutionality of the National Bank of the United States, and the future of the Enlightenment. Please join us for all that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly opportunity to discuss historical events with President Thomas Jefferson, who is seated across from me now. And as always, sir, good to see you. And may I wish you, sir, a very happy new year. And to you, good day, my dear citizen. Mr. Jefferson, I, last week we talked about Christmas and your reticence, if I might say, to recognize it as a holiday. In fact, there were only two holidays you really liked to celebrate, the 4th of July, of course. And I, I believe you said that there was mathematical certainty in celebrating New Year's. Well, now, thanks to the revision of the calendar, when I was born in 1743, the English-speaking world was still operating under the old Julian calendar, which was off by 11 days from the truth about the solar system. And the Catholic Church had uh, developed a Gregorian calendar in the 16th century, and it brought it up to date. Uh, unfortunately, the English-speaking world was unwilling to adopt that reform, I suppose, because it came out of Catholicism. But at any rate, the new year used to begin in March, but now with the new Gregorian calendar, the new year began on January 1st. And as you know, the Roman god Janus looked both before and after. And so it's a very useful pivot between one calendar year and the next. And because it's purely mathematical, it has nothing to do with gods or goddesses or mythological events or kings or queens or Christian saints. Because of that, it's a purely mathematical moment and therefore I can cheerfully subscribe to it as a holiday. Well, Mr. Jefferson, if I might, I, I don't want to get too personal with you, but it seems, sir, that you consider many of these holidays uh, frivolous and uh, unimportant. You just explained mathematically why you can celebrate New Year's, but uh, aren't human beings entitled to some frivolous celebrations to enjoy themselves? Must one be so serious about these holidays, sir? Well, first of all, they are free to have whatever holidays they want, as long as they don't ask the United States government to declare them officially. That's where I uh, find fault. But it's not frivolous. It's just irrational. And it's particularly irrational for a nation that prides itself on separation of church and state, nevertheless, to celebrate certain Christian occasions. Some Americans are not Christians. They're Jews. They're Mohammedans. Uh, they may be Hindus. They may believe in the Great Spirit or the Manitou of, of the Iroquois peoples. 
it's not for a neutral United States government to prefer one religious system over another, and something like Christmas or Easter are inevitably Christian holidays, which suggests an establishment of religion which is specifically prohibited by the First Amendment of the Constitution. So if I appear to be... Um, if I appear a little cranky or grouchy about these things, it's because I believe so strongly in the unlimited freedom of the human mind. Well, no, sir, of course, your argument is quite sound, and your facts are there for all to see, but uh, it's as if you prefer to stand up very straight and uh, disavow the enjoyment of others simply by saying, well, it's not a government duty. Can't you just enjoy the day, sir? I do enjoy almost every day. I get up, I bathe my feet in water, I write letters, I ride my horse, I supervise the gardens and the fields if it's the growing season. I read books in seven languages. I spend time with my daughter and, and my grandchildren. I engage in scientific pursuits, taking down the weather twice a day. Believe me, sir, my days are filled with delight and deep satisfaction. And I don't mind if other people celebrate any of these things. It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. Understood, Mr. Jefferson. But uh, in, in spite of all that, I, I am going to, at this time, wish you, sir, a very happy holiday season and particularly a very happy new year. May I say to everyone, I hope that you are rational and I hope that you believe in the idea of a republic and if you do, everything else will be just fine. Thank you so very much, Mr. Jefferson. You are welcome, sir. And welcome to this week's edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. I'm your host, David Swenson, joined by the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson, and also joined by numerous guests from our shows in 2022. As we always like to do at the end of the year, we look back on some of our favorite conversations. And we start with Lindsay Chervinsky talking about Abigail Adams. It's great to do these programs. We move so fast, 52 new programs per year, that it's often hard to remember just what transpired in any year-long calendar, David. And I love uh, hearing some of the retrospection. So what's so amazing about Lindsay is that she brings a, a different lens to this. And to hear her talk about these questions is always really interesting and enlightening to me. And so... I think here we're talking about whether Jefferson would have been comfortable with an outspoken woman like Abigail Adams. Yes, and what a strong personality Abigail Adams had and, and how John Adams embraced that. Let's listen, shall we? Yes. If ever a person had a mate, a soulmate, a helpmate plus a soulmate, in some sense co-president of the United States, wife of one, mother of another, 
Uh, it was Abigail Smith, who later became Abigail Adams. Abigail Adams did not allow the traditional boundaries of gender or of women's roles or of women's deference to get in the way of doing the right thing. She was she was quietly unwilling to conform to those standards, wouldn't you say? I would. And I, you bring up two excellent points. The first is that there were these standards about gender expectations, and she had a very good understanding of what they were and knew how to get around them. So when John left, she had someone appointed power of attorney, a man, because that was how the legal system worked, but who would do her bidding. So she was completely in control of any legal decisions. And part of the reason she is pretty remarkable compared to some of the other Virginian first ladies that came later is that she had a pretty robust classic education. She was reading texts that a lot of Virginian women weren't necessarily having access to. And because she was able to read those things, to go to school, to then have education in her own home, not only did that help her when John was not there and she had to raise her own children, but it meant that she could go toe-to-toe with him in these references when they're writing letters back and forth. She knew exactly what he was saying and could give just as good as she got. And John Adams deserves some credit for being good with that. In other words, some men, and Jefferson, I think, is one of them, that would have turned the subject away from Cicero or political thought because he would have thought that that was a little too much burden for the the tenderness of ladies. Uh, John Adams did not have any of that squeamishness. He was like, bring it. Let's have this conversation. You're my most trusted advisor. You, You are as intellectually rigorous as I am and a better judge of human character than I am. And so the fact that John was open to a strong, independent, forceful, articulate, free-thinking woman is something you probably would not have found in Jefferson's Virginia. That's true. And you still sometimes don't find it in all men today, um, if I may say so. There's actually a, a Jane Austen quote, which I don't usually bring into our podcast, but it says, men of sense do not want silly wives. And I think John Adams took that concept and embraced it heartily and recognized what an asset she was to him. At the end of January, Clay, you had a discussion with Darren Staloff, the author of Hamilton, Adams, Jefferson, The Politics of Enlightenment and the American Founding. In his book, he writes that America owes its guiding political traditions to three founding fathers whose lives embodied the collision of European enlightenment with the founding of America. He starts his conversation with you talking about all of the actual similarities between Hamilton and Jefferson. First of all, I found the book really extraordinary, and the minute I read it, I suggested that we interview him. Now, he sees these three, Adams, Jefferson, and Hamilton, as essentially in the same mold, but with slightly different emphases. I would distinguish them more completely than that. But what strikes me is is that Jefferson was a figure of the Enlightenment, but he also was a romantic, and he had this dream of an agrarian republic in which farmers would work in their fields by day and read Homer in the original Greek at night. Professor Staloff's view is that, yes, that's all true of Jefferson, but it wasn't part of his major thrust, that he was quite a pragmatist when it came to the actual policy trajectory of the country, and not that distinct from Hamilton. Let's have a listen to a part of that conversation, shall we? Of course. 
All right. Well, look, I've been so looking forward to uh, to meeting you. I love your book. I didn't know your book. I'm not a great Hamilton lover, <laughs> but I picked up your book. And, and I'll tell you what struck me most about it was uh, the strong case you made for Hamilton as an ideal exemplar of the Enlightenment in America. And normally, I take Jefferson's view that he was an outlier and kind of a proto-capitalist who didn't understand the genius of the American experiments. You know, when we think about the differences between the two parties, and they were very vicious. I mean, every bit as vicious as now, maybe worse. And even between the exemplars of Hamilton and Jefferson, who had some hard feelings towards each other, it's easy to forget how much they had in common and how much they agreed on, which was probably about 80% of stuff. So for example, Hamilton and Jefferson both wanted a popular republic. They both wanted a fiscally sound state. They both wanted ordered liberty. Exactly some of the precise configurations of that they disagreed about. Even where they disagreed, there was a lot of overlap, which is to say there's Hamilton certainly in his reports favored a program of manufacturing and he wanted to advance it. He thought that was the future. To be fair, Jefferson also thought that was the future. They, they just had a different sense of the timing of it and how desirable it was. And if you'd ask Jefferson in the long run, what is the future? Is it gonna be manufacturing and urbanization? He would have said, yes, it's just, I'm not in a rush to get there. <laughs> and, and that's not so much a judgment of reality because I think they agreed on a lot of that. It's a judgment of both style of thought and, and of preference. You know, Hamilton was a city slicker <laughs> and he couldn't get there fast enough. I mean, you know, and uh, Jefferson just wasn't. Um, he saw that that probably was going to be a future at some point, but it wasn't to his taste. I, I think Hamilton was, in the things he was interested about, he was actually deeper. He was a a real nerd. And when he studied something, he got to the bottom of it and worked really hard. But he didn't have the breadth that Jefferson had. And that's what's really stunning about Jefferson is, of all of the founders, he definitely has the most Catholic tastes um, in that he's not only reads political philosophy and moral philosophy and what we would call metaphysics and epistemology and critical religion, but he's also an aesthete. I mean, his literary tastes are impeccable. I mean, he's so incredibly well read. It's the more remarkable that Jefferson could do this because one of the things you say over and over again in your book is that the Enlightenment was essentially an urban phenomenon, that cities made it possible with their coffee houses and their taverns and their philosophical societies and their transactions and their, their printing presses and their libraries and so on, and that this is how it worked. And yet the most urbane of the Founding Fathers is a man who lives on an isolated mountain in the middle of nowhere in rural Virginia. And so it's the more remarkable that Jefferson was able to be that person with so little surround. Of course, David, no year is complete unless we check in several times with our West Coast Enlightenment correspondent, Mr. David Nicandri, and he is really up to date on all things Captain Cook. He has one book about James Cook already in print and another coming. And he wanted to talk about the HMS Endeavor, which was one of Cook's ships that sank in Providence Harbor in Rhode Island and has recently been rediscovered. It raises a lot of questions. Can it be resurfaced? Can divers go down with, with video equipment and, 
and, and other uh, testing devices and to learn more about this? Or is it just one of those tricks? I mean, maybe it's just fascinating, but wouldn't necessarily lead to any new understandings of the world of James Cook. So it's always a delight to talk to David Nicandri, and he always brings a fascinating perspective to our conversations. Yes, and in this part of the conversation, he points out that it was Cook's cartography skills that were really responsible for his successful voyages. Let's listen. It's normally I contact David Nicandri and say, can we talk about the recent discovery of an intact mammoth, or can we have a conversation about the nature of exploration? But this time, he contacted me and said, Citizen, there's this extraordinary discovery in Rhode Island that probably confirms that one of Cook's ships, maybe the most famous, the Endeavor, sunk in a harbor in Rhode Island. And he wanted to come on the program to talk about this exciting discovery. And he was like a child with enthusiasm for this extraordinary moment in the history of exploration. Uh, Dave, welcome to the Jefferson Hour. I think there's news in the world of Captain Cook. Yeah, the Cook world has been literally a buzz uh, the last week or so with the uh, the news that Captain Cook's first trans-oceanic craft, the Endeavor, was discovered in Newport, Rhode Island Harbor there at Narragansett Bay. News outlets all over the world have covered it. For those who might not know, tell us who James Cook was. Born 1728, died February 14th, 1779. Made his reputation in the British Royal Navy during uh, the Seven Years' War, what we in North America call the French and Indian War. Was clearly one of the top talents in the cartographic realm. Came to the attention of the higher-ups in the Admiralty so that when the combination of the Royal Society and the Royal Navy wanted to dispatch an astronomical crew to the four corners of the world, literally, Cook got that command as a mere lieutenant. The voyage uh, was successful. He got two subsequent commissions, uh, another epic voyage in the Southern Hemisphere that circumnavigated Antarctica, and then his third and last voyage, which commenced in the noteworthy month of July 1776 in search of the Northwest Passage, and it was on that voyage that he was killed in Hawaii. So I think it's fair to say that that his rise was based on meritocracy. He didn't come from the nobility or from one of the aristocratic families. There was no one who was a more accomplished map maker than James Cook. It is that skill primarily that landed him the job for the transit of Venus mission to Endeavor. It's also important to point out he had very able assistants who could help him accomplish this work. It's not as if Cook himself did all of the cartography associated with his voyages, but it must be said he supervised it. David, this is fascinating. Let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll examine other highlights from the Thomas Jefferson Hour in the year 2022.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour and our 2022 retrospective. We're hearing from many of our contributors, many of the conversations that we had last year. One of the things that I inaugurated last year was our 10 Things series. And we have done a fairly large number of them, David. And one of the most interesting to me was 10 Things About the Painting the crossing of the Delaware. I think everybody knows that famous painting with George Washington standing up in the bow and, and the ice chunks next to him. Uh, it's a huge painting, now in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. Uh, it's 21 feet wide by 12 feet high. It was painted by a man named Emanuel Lutze, and it is a truly heroic, even mythic depiction of that famous Christmas Eve crossing of the Delaware River. This was one of my favorite conversations from last year, and I really liked that, that Lindsay started out by recognizing it's best if we can imagine this event from the perspective of those who were there. Shall we listen? Yes. Washington had lost most of his troops. The states were sort of threatening to not re-up, to not send more funds, to not send more militia. And so it just really was an extremely dire moment, and that it's easy for us to know from 2022 how it all turned out and, you know, how they had this success. But it's really important that we, you know, take away that present context and think about what they were feeling at that moment and how dark it actually was. And there are three things that really strike me about this. Number one, it was a Christmas night crossing. So there's Christmas. That's daring. Uh, secondly, this was a, maybe the darkest period of the war so far. And so we needed a really important symbolic pick-me-up of, of one type or another. This gave us that. And third, it led to a monumental painting by Emanuel Lutze. But it's iconic. It, it's one of those paintings that has uh, blown beyond its importance as a piece of art to a piece of, of national memory. And, and I remember seeing it. I think it's 12 by 21 feet. So that is huge. It's destroyed at this moment when the United States is in a all-out battle for the future of democracy globally. And a, a little bit of military backstory in this. There were actually supposed to be three separate crossings. They were supposed to cross at different places. Some of the crossings didn't actually work out because of the way the river moves and the ice flow. And it was simply too dangerous for some of the other crossings to take place. They ended up crossing later and meeting up with Washington. But so many of these figures, when they thought about the war and they thought about sacrifice and they thought about what it meant to be in the military and in the revolution, they could think of this moment as a touchstone for them. And it really was a an emotional calling point for the soldiers that had been present. And so I think it's just so valuable to think about all the people, all the names we know, and to be able to kind of figure out where they were in this configuration. And the conditions were terrible. They were horrible that night. It's great to think about all these people being there and what that meant to them later on. Just again, Washington, of course, James Monroe, who later became Jefferson's protege and the fifth president of the United States, Thomas Mifflin, William Bradford, Henry Knox, uh, the great Alexander Hamilton, Arthur St. Clair, Joseph Reed, the painter and museum director, Charles Wilson Peale. Whose idea was this, Lindsay? Who, who cooked up this scheme? Well, I think it was a multi-prong effort. There was certainly Washington was convinced by early December that some sort of action was required. A, a large number of troops 
their enlistments had expired actually on December 1st and they had gone home. So in, you know, just a couple of weeks, he had lost thousands and thousands of troops. There was a conviction, I think a shared conviction among the officer corps that something had to be done. You, know, you read about this and it's like, it's like a movie. I mean, I, I, it's hard to believe that it, it succeeded. There was so much working against them. Yeah, I think this is one of those moments where it could have, I mean, Washington had a real sense that he was protected by providence or fate and was sort of destined for uh, bigger and better things. And when you read about the retreats from New York and then you read about this moment, it's hard not to agree with him because so much could have gone wrong and not a single soldier and not a single piece of artillery was lost in these crossings. The odds of that happening are kind of like preposterously astronomical. And yet the fact that they all get across to the other side, we know that it goes on to be this amazing surprise. It's one of those moments where you kind of can't help feel like, yeah, maybe he was right. Maybe there is an element of providential design in this plan. I really enjoyed that conversation. Next up, uh, you had a one-on-one -on -one conversation with Derek Baxter, and uh, it was about his book, In Pursuit of Jefferson, Traveling Through Europe and the Most Perplexing Founding Father. To write this book, he, he spent eight years doing research and traveling to sites in Europe. He, he talked about how hard it was to find some of the locations, uh, particularly the 19 gardens that Jefferson visited. Derek Baxter and his family went to all the Jefferson sites that they could find in England, uh, in the Low Countries, in Germany, in France, and in Italy. And he wrote this book, In Pursuit of Jefferson. David, one of the things I found remarkable in the book is that they went to all of the gardens that Jefferson went to with John Adams in England. I've never been to all of those gardens. I'm not even sure it's worth going to all of those gardens, but they did. And so that's really important work. The rest of us will benefit by his taking that big project on. It's like trying to find all the Caravaggio paintings in the world or all the Vermeer paintings that exist and going to Stuttgart and to London and to Florence and to Rome and so on. But he did it. And But what, what struck me about the book most is, is the subtitle. Give me that again. Traveling Through Europe with the Most Perplexing founding father. And guess why he's perplexing. Uh, David Baxter, like everybody else, um, got tripped up on slavery, and he went to several places in Europe where the slave trade was prominent. And he then, in a sense, couldn't recover his delight in Jefferson's adventure from his awareness that Jefferson was fundamentally a hypocrite with um, respect to questions of race and slavery. And so in, in my opinion, that's a habit of historiography at the present moment. I'm not entirely sure it's altogether healthy. Let's listen to just a short portion of that conversation between you and Derek Baxter. It was hard to find some of these. You know, I was looking at old maps and looking, and, you know, we'd show up a couple of these places and they would just be like a scraggly meadow, or there'd be a little vestige of a garden that's now part of a prep school or something like that. Or one, the first one we, was a golf course. It wasn't even really a garden anymore. So, so yes, there was lots of different opinions about how useful that trip was. But for, for me, I really appreciate it because some of them are obviously amazingly pre preserved. Some are, you know, some of the most famous gardens in the world. So contrasting those with other gardens, which might have been very impressive in Jefferson's time, and now there's almost nothing there, 
also I think was meaningful to me just to see kind of the passage of time and, and how much work you have to put into preserving something. When you're doing this, how does it help you think about Jefferson? Jefferson was just very practical. He's such an interesting take on his travel because he, 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 could, he was certainly capable of sometimes wrote these very lyrical descriptions of what he saw, but most of the time it's just jotting down the notes. Like here's, you know, this temple looks good. You know, the trees are here, the pond is here. I think he took back some ideas. I have to think that seeing all these in purpose in 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 uh, in person and rating them and figuring out which gardens he liked, you know, fed into um, the vision he eventually had. So he, I mean, he he brings a ton of stuff back with him. This gigantic shopping spree that he went on, which is um, sort of appalling when you consider that he didn't really have any money to pay for all that. He brings back architectural thought and that has a gigantic influence in the course of American history. He brings back an understanding of wine and how the wine business works and how you can ship wines and so on. And that has a significant influence. Gardening was a little less so because, and he admits we're not quite there yet. We don't have enough wealth. We don't have enough luxury to incorporate these ideas, but, but he certainly wanted this kind of landscape aesthetic to be part of the American world too, didn't he? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. It wasn't fully realized. He, he wrote in his guide and hence to Americans traveling in Europe, he wrote that gardening of the various arts is one that America actually could, could achieve quicker than, you know, uh, doing fine paintings, you know, like you would see the old masters doing, um, because, because they have the plants. And he said, in fact, we've got the gardens, you just have to cut out the super abundant plants and the garden will emerge. Of course, it's a lot of work and it was the work was being done in the South by enslaved people, for sure. For me, there are two huge perplexities in Jefferson's 1787 trip. Number one, that he didn't go on to Rome and Naples and, and so on, because we just want him to continue down the spine of Italy. That's number one. And number two, as you point out um, in perplexity, why didn't he go see the Palladian villas when he was within a day or two of them? It must have been frustrating for Jefferson. And, and to give the context in case in case everyone doesn't know, he was ambassador to France. He went to South. He took leave to go to Aix-en-Provence, ostensibly to, to take the hot waters there because he had broken his wrist. He thought soaking in the waters would help them. Of course, he was, Jefferson got bored after a few days of soaking and, and quit the treatment. Um, it was a bit of a pretext. He had, he had wanted to go to the south of France even before that. And he also thought there could be some public benefit to his trip. He was going to investigate the different seaports in France, like Marseille and Bordeaux, and, and, and investigate you know, how could he help American commerce, which was his job. So he went down there, and he was so close. He, he was obviously dying to go to Italy. He had grown up reading the classics, and the founders uh, and that generation of America uh, just idolized, uh, of American leaders idolized the Romans, like kind of like we do to some extent to the founders today. So he, you know, he read Latin, he, he knew the stories, he really wanted to go. He hit on an, an, a reason to go to, to Northwestern Italy to investigate the kind of rice they had, which was a legitimate reason. And I think related enough to his job uh, as ambassador, he wanted to see if there was a different kind of rice that planters in the Carolinas could plant. He talked about uh, Jefferson and rice. Can you tell that story, Clay? David, it's one of my favorite stories. Jefferson made a tour of southern France, particularly in the summer of 1787. He went to a, a range of vineyards and made arrangements to get 
wine shipped over to the United States, etc. And he was fascinated by a, a strain of rice that held up better than the South Carolina strains that he was used to in the United States. And so he went to Nice in southern France looking for it, couldn't find what he wanted, and then and then only decided to cross the Alps and go into northern Italy to Milan in hopes of seeing this rice and seeing the machine that, that, that husked it and so on. When he saw this strain in Milan or near Milan, he decided it was superior to the rice grown in the United States. And as you know, Jefferson once said, he who introduces a new plant species has done the greatest service to his country. And so he then wanted to bring that rice back, but it was a capital crime to export it in its raw state. And so Jefferson, he did it anyway. So Jefferson took a couple of hands full of that rice and put it in his pockets and carried it across the border into France uh, and then brought it back to the U.S. and, and did dutifully sent it to South Carolina, but they decided that it wasn't superior. This was an agricultural uh, setback uh, for Jefferson and the Enlightenment, but he was perfectly willing to smuggle the rice, even at the possible expense of his head. Well, let's move on to another conversation from May last year called Original Argument, and the original argument was uh, between Jefferson and Hamilton about a national bank uh, actually, this is from our podcast intro. We talked to Jefferson about it, but this is you and I discussing the original argument. This edition is one close to our hearts because... Yeah, I hope it's not too dry. I don't think Do so. Think it's, a, it it's about, the, you know, it's the dry part is the National Bank of the United States. But the interesting part is that Hamilton and Jefferson were asked by the great George Washington, the first president, to write a memo each about whether a national bank was constitutional, whether the U.S. Constitution authorized Congress creating a national bank of the United States. And Jefferson famously said, no, he's a strict constructionist. It's not enumerated in the Constitution. And Hamilton said, yes. yes. Do you want to be a great nation that's going to have to make some adjustments? And you don't want every time that you want an adjustment to have to go to the process of a constitutional amendment or a new Constitutional Convention. Come on, folks, we need some fundamental good sense and flexibility in this. It was either you or Jefferson who brought up, I think it was Jefferson who brought up this uh, complex series of events that, that Hamilton wanted to... He wanted three things. He wanted to, to assume the national debt and pay it off, including the state debts. That was number one. Number two, he wanted a national banking system, a national bank, to coordinate this, which makes a certain kind of sense. And number three, he wanted to um, it's called mercantilism. He wanted to fund infant industry so the United States could begin to compete with Great Britain. And that's what I thought was pretty interesting. Is you know he wanted to he wanted to create tax breaks for certain companies yes, that they liked, and, uh, and, and you know a lot of it sounds fairly modern. It's what we do. Yeah, we do, and uh, we go back to this argument to find out the origins of it. Well, Hamilton believed that we were going to be a great commercial world power with a strong military and a central government that was flexible enough to do all the things that it might possibly want to do, which is exactly what we've become. And Jefferson believed that we were a kind of unique in human history experiment in severely limited government, and it would be worth our while to try to be pure to that as long as we possibly could. As you like to say, he also doubled the size of the United States with an unconstitutional I didn't purchase. have a problem doing that one. Well, no. nobody does. I mean, look, if, yeah, if someone, came, if someone <laughs> came to you tonight and offered you the whole city block 
You would say, of course, you have to take, of course. Yes. You, you know, you, when the lottery comes to you in that way, you have to say yes, but it did compromise Jefferson's principles. And Frederick, by the way, David, Frederick Jackson Turner, in his famous essay of, of 1893 called The Significance of the Frontier in American History, said when Jefferson purchased Louisiana in 1803, he essentially killed the republic because to administer that much territory was going to require much, 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 much more government than could ever have been contemplated by the Founding Fathers. Uh, if Jefferson understood the importance of, let's say, a national library or a national uh, museum, he would say, you know, I really like that idea, pass an amendment. Yes, he said that. So you and I have a, a very important example of this, David, because we're both lovers of Lewis and Clark. So when Lewis comes back, he brings back this immense treasury of bear necklaces and and fur robes. And had and, there been a national... Had there been a Smithsonian, that those things would have been saved. And Jefferson said no. Charles Wilson Peel, the great museum uh, innovator in Philadelphia, and the person who wound up with a lot of the treasures of the Lewis and Clark expedition, wrote to Jefferson and said basically, well, don't you think that it's about time for us to have a national museum? And Jefferson, who loved this idea, I mean, of course you want... National, you want the Smithsonian. Of course you want the National but Art Gallery. But it wasn't constitutional. But it wasn't there. And so yeah. Jefferson wrote back and said two things. He said, my friend, however desirable this is, we must first pay off the national debt. That's our moral duty. And secondly, since it wasn't enumerated or contemplated, we have to go back to the people and get an amendment that authorizes this sort of thing. He also wanted a national university. He wanted national libraries, etc. But he said, no. However desirable these are, we can't just do them because they're good and desirable. We must find specific authorization in the social compact of the United States, and I don't see it, so I won't do it. So if we have anybody in history to blame for a bloated government, it's Alexander Hamilton. He led us down that path. There's your musical on Broadway. Yeah, well, yeah, I need to go back and, and, and make sure my justification was correct. There are two of the greatest men who ever lived in the United States. They're ex extraordinarily talented writers and, and, and uh, persuaders. And Washington turned to these two colossi, these two giants of American political thinking and said, all right, what's the, what's the right thing to do? He, he didn't have to do that. He could have just either signed it or not signed it, but he turned to them and they each wrote a classic. That really was one of my favorite conversations with President Jefferson. So with that, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll be joined by one of the titans of the Jefferson Hour contributors, Mr. Joe Ellis. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to the Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to this special edition of the Year in Review 2022. Every year at this time, we look back on the 52 programs we have recorded for that year and pick out some of the most interesting moments to share, not only with our listeners across the country and even across the world, but we enjoy it ourselves to to look back on, on what we have managed to accomplish in that calendar year. And I'll say this, David, I've said it before on the Jefferson Hour, that COVID-19 was one of the most disruptive events of my lifetime. Uh, And it had a really extraordinary disruptive effect on the world's economy, on our educational systems, on the, the small businesses across this country and elsewhere. But it did give us one enormous gift. It gave us Joe Ellis. He had been a very occasional guest on this program, but because he was sheltered and we were sheltered and Zoom technology had suddenly come into the play, we were able to communicate with him on a regular basis. And he's added so much depth and such an extraordinary uh, set of insights to the Jefferson Hour that it would be wrongheaded for us to do a retrospective for any recent year without including a Joseph Ellis highlight. And this conversation, which we recorded in June, was about the Enlightenment. And Joseph Ellis says that the very basis of the Enlightenment was truth and truth-seeking, and he feels that the filibuster is unconstitutional. I found that very interesting. Let's have a listen, shall we? Yes. You know, I th- here's what I think the founding was about. You know, Joe says it's about this discussion, this argument about the meaning of the revolution, or, or you might put it another way, the meaning of a republic. And so they, yes. most of them agreed that we want a republic. They weren't altogether certain of what that exactly meant, but we know some things about it. They meant that the people were sovereign and that the people were going to generate the social compact and then ratify it state by state and so on. But here's the big argument. Here's the discussion that they were having. If the people are sovereign, do we just listen to their will as, to the extent that we can discern it and enact that into law, or do we filter and distill their will by way of a number of different distilling mechanisms, some of which check and balance each other. And and Adams was always for checks and balances, Mr. Jefferson, checks and balances. And Jefferson agreed to a certain degree, but he was more naive, let's say, or more optimistic. He had greater faith in the the wisdom of the common man. He did. Right. To govern themselves, right? The word republic is the key, and we need to recognize that the American Revolution was in fact a genuine intellectual political revolution. It was to say that power did not flow from God to monarchs and downward to feudal uh, lords. It flowed upward from that mystic thing called the people. It's a reversal of the whole idea of what government represents. And in the 18th, late 18th century, the, term, the key term was republic, res publica things of the public. The word democracy, even for Jefferson, he changes about 1816 on this, but up until then, democracy is an epithet. You accuse somebody of being a Democrat because a democracy is a, is a, is a form of government in which popular opinion, which is always subject to demagogic manipulation, and is, it often be, takes the form of mob rule. And they're thinking back to Rome and, and uh, Tacitus and Cicero. 
that you don't want to have a democracy. What you want to have is just what you said, Clay, namely popular opinion stands at the foundation, but then on the foundation is built government, which filters this popular opinion through channels of refinement. And the, the commitment is not to the people. The commitment is to the public. And so what we want the Senate to do and what we want a president to do and what we want the Supreme Court to do is not be influenced by fads of the moment, but to see the long-term interest of the republic. And you can disagree about that. You have to recognize that your highest goal is not to be elected to the Senate, but to act in ways that if, if it causes your, your defeat in the next election, that's no problem. Not, might be a problem for you, but um, but they, the public interest has to take precedence over the popular interest. I, I listened to you just now, Joe, and you said popular opinion stands at the foundation. And maybe that's the way it was intended. But and I'm looking at this and going, you know, three branches of government, well, not working out so great. You know, we've got a situation in America now where minority rules in the Senate because of the filibuster. The Supreme Court has become, as I think you would both agree, very politicized. And we we have gone through presidential changes. Uh, the, the norms and decorum of the office have been thrown out. So I, it's, it's, it's a bit dicey now, isn't it? Well, I mean, if you gathered the founders together, and of course, you know, you can't do that. And trying to bring the founders into the present is like trying to plant cut flowers. Jefferson himself said, look, don't do that. Don't do that. Uh, what we have done in, at our moment in history is consolidate the wisdom of our moment. But don't look back to us. And, and Jefferson even said that the Constitution ought to be redone every 20 years. Uh, every generation needed to have its own version of the Constitution, which, of course, would have been chaos. But I think that what you're saying is true. And in the present, if you ask me, and of course, I confer with the, with the founders on a daily basis by reading their letters. So I sort of think they're talking to me. And what they say to me is, first of all, what is this thing called the filibuster? Um, we never had that. We specified three or four occasions in the Constitution where a vote in the Senate had to be a supermajority. Go to war, overthrow a presidential veto, or pass a Supreme Court amendment. Um, and also approve all treaties. That's four things. Everything else was supposed to be a strict majority vote. If it's a filibuster or cloture, that is unconstitutional, in my judgment. It's a procedural change that has made a constitutional change. And that, thing, and that to me means it is unconstitutional. At last fall in uh, September, I invited Joe Ellis to return to this show so that you and he could reflect on the life of David McCullough. Let's listen to the two of you talk about him. I was friends with David. Uh, we did some things together. The most important was we testified before a subcommittee of, of the House for the construction of a memorial to Abigail and John Adams on the Mall. And he was great in that moment. And... Um, and he brought the prestige of his work in the past. But I would actually say that only one, one person, Ken Burns, has influenced more Americans and made them more aware of what their history was and is than our man. And um, his body of work 
is extraordinarily impressive. There ought to be, I, I'm, I was thinking of calling up Ken Burns and saying, Ken, I think he should do a special called The Work of uh, David McCulloch, or The Vision of David McCulloch for America. And Lord knows, in this divided political environment, we need uh, to be able to talk about things uh, that bring us together in our understanding of who we are as a people and a nation. And I think David, David had an instinct for that. His goal is to render as a witness, and he does a great job at that. It's sad that he's left us, but we still have his books to read and to reread. Maybe the last American historian who still wrote his books on a manual typewriter. Right. And then, sir, we go to October, and Mr. Jefferson joins us again, once again, portrayed by you, sir, in a conversation titled Responsibilities and Books. And this was prompted by a listener question, inquiries about banning books and citizens' rights and responsibilities. I love it when we get listener questions that create a program. That's my favorite form of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. So Jefferson was one of the great uh, articulators of the concept of virtually unlimited freedom of expression. Not 100% unlimited, but almost entirely. And he believed that the truth would defeat error in a fair fight, that uh, good sense would, uh, would triumph over nonsense, that science would triumph over superstition. And now we see uh, waves of book banning, even book burning, and it's very disturbing from the point of view of the Enlightenment, and nobody better to talk about this with than Thomas Jefferson. Let's go to that conversation now. Mr. Jefferson, it would be safe to say that you would oppose banning books, even if the ideas were ones you strongly disagreed with. Am I correct? Yes. In in the preamble to the Virginia Statute for Religious Liberty, which was published in 1786. I say that the truth is great and will prevail when left to itself, that the, the that when government gets involved in the free exchange of ideas, it inevitably distorts that process, and that the only ideas that need government support are bad ones, that in a fair contest, truth will win over falsehood, that good sense will win over nonsense, and, and that we need to be confident that the truth um, is more potent in the long run than anything that is untruth or superstitious uh, or conspiracy. So I, I believe very strongly that, that this trial must be made. Look, I suffered. You know that I was accused of being an atheist all of my life, which is not at all true that I was uh, accused of being a dangerous Jacobin, that my principles were too radical, that I'd been Frenchified, that I had stayed in France too long, that I, that I was not reliable in some sense of order and, and protection of property and so on. And so, of course, I would have loved to shut down those presses and prosecute those ruffians who, people who didn't know me, who, who had no idea who I was, but nevertheless wrote scurrilous attacks on my life and character and, and, and damaged the, the serenity of my children and grandchildren and my closest friends. Of course, I would have liked to stop them. Everyone wants to shut down that kind of abuse. But to do so is to enter 
a kind of road to authoritarianism. And the question I always ask is, who gets to decide? Do I get to decide what gets published? Does George Washington get to decide? Does Benedict Arnold get to decide? Does Aaron Burr get to decide? This is a power that can be very easily abused by anybody who embraces it. And so the best thing for us to do, and believe me, it was agonizingly hard, is to withdraw, say nothing, and assume that the public will sort out uh, these vicious attacks that are made in the press from time to time, and largely that was the case. Clay, finally, and I think this is appropriate that Jefferson gets the last word, another conversation with Mr. Jefferson, as portrayed by you, and this came from October, the wall of separation. And we talk with Jefferson about his famous letter that he wrote to the Danbury Baptists in 1802, saying it was not the duty of government to do anything that might be interpreted as the establishment of religion. So this is maybe Jefferson's greatest achievement. He believed more strongly than anything else in his life that the mind should be utterly free and uncoerced, that there should be no penalty and there should be no benefit for thinking what you think, and that government has absolutely no right to get involved in your conscience or your thinking unless it breaks out into crime. But if it's just language, then that's protected in any free society. And uh, of the three things Jefferson wanted to be remembered for, the Declaration of Independence, the University of Virginia, the centerpiece was the Virginia Statute for Religious Liberty, which is one of the greatest of all articulations of that principle. So now we join President Jefferson for that conversation. The phrase wall of separation between church and state is a figurative phrase. In other words, there isn't a literal wall. It's not made of bricks and mortar. Using that metaphor was unusual for me. The metaphors that I tended to use in similes in my writing were about the ship of state, and you can find innumerable instances of that. Uh, the ship has come safely into port, and we've, we've, we've weathered the storm of the Federalists, and so on and so forth. But this was an unusual moment for me, and that signified that this was a moment when I was really stepping back and trying to find precisely the right language for this. It was never intended to be an official document. It was written by the person who happened to be the president of the United States. I was assuring the, the Baptists of Danbury that as, as far as I was concerned, they were safe to pursue their religion, which they would not have been had there not been this principle growing in the United States that every person was entitled to worship the God of his choice without civil reward or civil penalty, but that it should in, in the 20th century, long after my time, have been adopted by the Supreme Court of the United States as a, as a tight paraphrase of the purposes, the principle of the, of the First Amendment, is striking to me. It, it slightly embarrasses me because I don't want to be the center of attention in that way. But I will say that, as far as I'm concerned, it is the tightest possible paraphrase of the intention of Mr. Madison and the Founding Fathers when they wrote the First Amendment of the Constitution. So it's, it's fair to say this is something you feel very strongly about, sir. This is something I feel more strongly about than almost anything else. You know, on my tombstone, the obelisk at Monticello in the, in the cemetery, the graveyard, I said I wanted to be remembered for three things, uh, just three. 
um, the Declaration of Independence, the University of Virginia, but at the center, the Virginia Statute for Religious Liberty, which was, at the time, the most radical statement ever made about separation of church and state. That preceded the, the letter to the Danbury Baptist by several decades. So, yes, I do feel extremely strongly about this. I believe that when the mind and the conscience are free, all other freedoms are available to us. But when the mind and the conscience are, are not free, are enslaved by, by tyranny or priestcraft or superstition or, or, or coercion, that the other freedoms of life uh, become less satisfying, in fact, less available. So what one privately believes is absolutely sovereign. And unless it leads to some sort of antisocial behavior, unless it leads to crime, it must be left unmolested, and by which I mean entirely unmolested by governing bodies at any level. So, Clay, that's it. A, a very small sampling of all the conversations on the Jefferson Hour in 2022. And I, I just love going through these and remembering the conversations. Lots of new things happened in 2022. New things are coming in 2023. But our goal is to, is to be a place where people can go to hear thoughtful discussion, argument in the best sense of the term. In other words, not shouting and name-calling, but you know, disagreeing. So everyone, thank you for listening through this year. You can go back and listen to all 52 episodes if you like, and more. And Happy New Year. We're looking forward to a great 2023, and we will see you all next week for another exciting edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program, Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson.